uh, we are beginning this morning our study in the book of James. Hopefully this week or last week you had the opportunity to come and pick up a copy of the James journals. Remember that if you don't have one of those already or if you didn't even know they were available, we'd love to put one in your hand. We can mail that to you or set up a time for you to come and grab one if you're local. But the James journal just provides you a simple way to, um, to have the scriptural text on one page and a blank page with lines on it for you to be able to sort of record and respond to what God is saying to you through the ongoing study. Uh, we here at Fullerton Free have found them, I think, a very helpful tool to sort of keep track of the voice of God over time as we've been studying these books together. So I'd encourage you to grab one of those. Before we dive into this first section of James chapter 1 this morning, I thought it might be helpful to give you a little bit of background and maybe even just a, a, little, bit of, uh, a little bit of instruction on wh- why we chose the book in general. The book, James, uh, is a letter. It's written by James. Uh, most scholars agree that's James, the brother of Jesus. Interestingly, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, was not always a follower of Jesus. And in fact, there was a time period in which uh, it, it was said of Jesus' brothers that they, they didn't really understand what was going on with him. But we know by the places where he sort of uh, becomes more prevalent uh, that he puts his faith in Christ, actually becomes one of the, the main leaders in the church at Jerusalem, was uh, presiding over the council of Jerusalem, which famously was that place where they recognized that God was opening the kingdom of God, not only to Jews, but to Gentiles. Uh, James had a, had a powerful speech. You can see that in the book of Acts in regard to that time. But this book is the oldest of the New Testament books that we have, and we know that uh, because he writes it specifically to a Jewish audience, and had this book been written by James uh, after the Council of Jerusalem, it's likely he would have included a Gentile audience in, in who he's addressing here. The fact that he's addressing it only to Jews leads us to believe that uh, the book of James comes prior to the Council of Jerusalem, so it's probably written in A.D. 45, 46, 47, right in there. The earliest of the New Testament books that we have even predates the gospel. So it gives us some great insight into what the early church Believed and what the early church was doing in response to what they had seen in the life of Christ, in his death and resurrection, and in his commandments to them in going forward. James is an intensely practical book. Uh, we don't find in this book a lot of new instruction as far as uh, more, more uh, information. We'll find that in other books in the New Testament. But James here is not necessarily trying to add more knowledge to our hearts and minds. He's trying to add wisdom to our lives. He's giving us practical uh, instruction on how to live a life that accords with what we say we believe. We've, uh, we've titled the series, Viewing the Invisible. Because in essence, it's one thing to claim we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's one thing to claim that we believe the Bible is true. It's one thing to claim that we believe Jesus rose from the dead, that he died in our place, that he's given us new life. As we learned in Ephesians, that he wants to unite us into one people, that he's called us to put him on display. It's one thing to say we believe those things. It's even another thing to to believe them internally. But what James will teach us is that if we believe those things internally, they will be made manifest in our external actions actions and in our behavior. What we believe internally will be put on display. So as a church body, one of our pillars is the idea of demonstrable faith. In fact, we would say demonstrable faith is the key to being able to have prophetic engagement in our world, that we can't have prophetic engagement until we are actively living what we believe. The book of James, again and again, will talk about how we put our faith on display, that what we believe will be made manifest in our actions. 
Uh, we'll see here in verse 1, uh, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that the early church recognized that Jesus was on equal footing, that he was in fact God. In fact, one way this verse could be, uh, could be interpreted, or one way this verse could have been translated is, uh, James, a servant of Jesus who is Lord and God. In our English translations, it says God and the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's clear that James recognized that his brother was more than just a prophet, more than just a great teacher, more than just a guy who came and gave some great speeches and died before his time. The early church and James, the brother of Jesus, recognizes that Jesus is Lord and God. That's important. It's also worth noting here that James doesn't say in his introduction, I'm the brother of Jesus, so you gotta pay attention to me, or I'm kind of a big deal in the church at Jerusalem, so you gotta pay attention to me, or I, 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 you know, he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he refers to himself as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus. He'll refer to Jesus as his Lord and us as his brethren, right? Multiple times in the book, we'll see him refer to us, men and women, as his brothers and sisters. So there's a familial relation between those who are followers of Christ, but when it comes to his own uh, half-brother, the Lord Jesus, he sees himself as a servant or a slave of that Lord. He says he's writing here in verse one, he says, James, a servant of, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now that's interesting because originally the idea of the dispersion was in reference to uh, the Israelites who'd been taken into captivity, first by Assyria and then later by the Babylonians. The dispersion was the way in which the, the Israelites had been sort of spread out. They saw themselves as a dispersion. What he's referring to here is not the ancient dispersion of Jews, although it includes them, but he's talking now about Jewish Christians. This book is written to those who believe in Christ, and what he's pointing out is the fact that much like their ancestors who'd been dispersed, Jewish Christians at this time were being persecuted. They were being persecuted by those who were Gentiles, who didn't understand their faith, and they were being persecuted by Jews who didn't want to have anything to do with them, saw the Christians as a cult, uh, and so they were outcasts. They were wanderers. They were lost. They were people who were longing for the kingdom of God, but certainly recognized that there was a journey ahead of them before the kingdom of God would be made manifest fully on the earth. Uh, they were people who were longing for their home. And so it's interesting that he writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He's not necessarily just referring to those who were carried off into Assyria or into Babylon, but he's referring to us. We're still in a season of feeling like we're outsiders, feeling like we're not quite at home. We are an embassy of the future when the will and whim of Christ will reign upon the earth. But right now we live in a world where all kinds of other whims and wills are at play. And so he's writing to us, the 12 tribes in the dispersion, and he's writing to say, your faith should be evident. Your faith should be on display. It's interesting, all the time we see uh, examples of somebody saying one thing, but, but denying it in their action, right? I had a guy, actually, even in the midst of all this isolation, I had a guy come to my door, a salesman come to my door like two weeks ago, there's a doorbell ring, you know, and I'm used to the doorbell ringing because Amazon's been dropping stuff off, but the doorbell rings, and I go to the door, and there's a guy there, and the first thing he says, and he's standing back a little ways, but the first thing he says is, I hate to bother you, but I wanted to know if you're interested in buying an alarm system for your house. We're installing one across the way, and I just wanted to check and see if you'd be interested in that as well. Well, the, the very first thing he says to me is, I hate to bother you, but if that were true, it's a nice thing to say, right? It's a nice way to begin the conversation, I hate to bother you. But if that were true, if he didn't want to bother me, and if he hated bothering me, he wouldn't have knocked on the door, right? So his very actions deny what he claims. His very actions deny 
what he claims. He can say one thing, but his actions show something different. I think you and I as followers of Jesus will see again and again in this book that our actions should reinforce what we say we believe. And in fact, there's a decent test that can be made for followers of Christ to assess what you believe or what you claim to believe or what you've been taught by looking at your actions. All throughout this book, it will be beneficial for you and I to look at our lives, to look at the fruit of our life, to look at what is evidenced in the way we live because it will be a tell of what is actually happening in our hearts and in our minds. James says, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings. Now I want you to know too, uh, by way of introduction, that, that most of this book will be written to talk about how our faith is made manifest in our relationships with one another. A lot of this has to do with relationships with each other. But this first chapter specifically begins by having us look and assess what's happening inside ourselves. It begins with our own individual assessment and then will work its way out eventually into our relationships with others. Here he's going to begin by having us to think differently about what's going on in our own actions and in our own response to circumstances. So we'll read it here together. The first thing uh, he says after his greeting to us, identifying himself as a servant of God and Lord Jesus Christ to these tribes who were dispersed and waiting anxiously to be reunited in their home. He says, greetings, and then in verse two, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I, I worked and worked and worked over the last couple of weeks trying to find a way to make this relevant to those of you who are listening. I, I, don't, I mean, most of us don't have any context for understanding trials or difficulty or conflict or discouragement or whatever that needs to be. Or, no, obvious. I mean, is there a more, I almost feel like at this point, there may be some of you who were tempted to turn it off, right? There may be some of you who tuned in for worship this morning, and when you hear me read the words of James where he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, there may be a thing in your heart that goes, I can't, I can't listen to this. Because joy has been so difficult to get your hands around. Because joy has been so difficult to find in the midst of all of the trial we're facing. Not that the trial we're facing historically is even necessarily greater than trials that men and women have faced throughout the course of human history. But what James is saying here is, is that, I want you to know, he doesn't say count it all joy if you meet various trials. There's not an if there. There is an absolute certainty that in the life of a follower of Jesus, there will be trials. One of the reasons why there's absolute certainty that there will be trials for the followers of Christ is that there were trials for Jesus, and he himself said it will be difficult to follow him. He himself said, all men will hate you because of me. They'll flog you. They'll drag you off into jail. They're, 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 they're going to condemn you. They're going to call you the devil. Jesus said, if you're my followers, you shouldn't expect that things are going to be easy. I think sometimes we've gotten into this mindset where, where we hope that in following Jesus, everything's going to be sunshine and rainbows and doves landing on our shoulders and people feeding us grapes or whatever. But you and I know that living this life, it is full of trials. He doesn't say count it all joy if you meet trials. He says when. And I want you to know that when he says count it all joy, this idea of counting it all joy is not, it's not a... Count is not a, it's not a verb of emotion or feeling. It's not saying that in all trials you should feel happy 
or that every trial you face is gonna give you a warm, tingly feeling, or you're gonna be able to giggle and sort of rub your hands together and go, oh, I'm so happy I'm going through this difficult circumstance. This isn't a verb of emotion. It's a verb of thought and consideration. He's saying consider the trials that you will certainly face, the multicolored and variegated trials that you will face. And by the way, the word meet there that says when you meet various trials, uh, that word essentially means that you fall into. We recognize that all of us who are followers of Jesus will face trials, and we're living through some of our own right now. It is an absolute that we will face trial, but while we know we will face trial, we don't see those trials coming. There is no sense of what the trials will be. There is a sense that they will be varied and multi-hued, right? That they're gonna come in all different shapes and sizes and that we will fall into them. We will meet them almost as if by surprise. We know they're coming, but we don't know when and we don't know what they'll look like. He says, when you fall into those various trials, not feel joy, but consider it joy, count it joy. It's a verb of thought. It's the ability to think about the trial you're facing and assess it and go, there is joy to be found in this. And I know that's a hard thing to wrap your mind around, but he tells us why. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, my brethren, there it is, that's not just masculine, that's men and women. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he explains to us how it is that we consider it joy in the midst of these various trials. How we do it is by recognizing that the trials serve a purpose. That God has allowed the trials in order to move us to to a particular end. That particular end is perfection and completeness, wholeness. Lacking in nothing, he says. Well, the idea there is the idea of maturity. The idea is, as we saw in Ephesians chapter four, that all of us over time are facing these various things in our lives, and over time we are being shaped and honed and conformed to the image of Christ. That there is a future for those who are followers of Jesus, and the future is that progressively we become more and more like Jesus. By the way, the book of James is not a book about mastery, right? There's very little in this book that you go, hey, read it, and now do it perfect and nail it every time. It's a book about maturity. It's a book about process. It's a book about every day sort of striving. So he says, when various trials fall into your lap, consider it joy because those trials will produce steadfastness. I want you to know, trials, trials in and of themselves do not produce conformity to the image of Christ. They do not produce perfection or completeness. They don't produce maturity. No, there's a, there's a step in the middle. The trials produce steadfastness or endurance. That's what it says in James 1. The trials produce endurance or steadfastness, and the endurance and the steadfastness produces maturity. You see the two steps? The steadfastness is, is the thing that provokes the maturity. And this is not different than what we saw when we studied the book of Hebrews together. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, uh, in verses 1 and 2, it says... Uh, It says, actually, through three. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance. There it is again, steadfastness. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, 
right? The joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It's saying we can look to Jesus and endure because for the joy set before him, he endured, right? So in the various trials that we fall into, we as followers of Jesus, and we will fall into trials, can consider it joy because it will produce in us a steadfastness, an endurance that looks like the endurance of Jesus and ultimately matures us and conforms us to his image. It's not uh, all different than what it says in Hebrews 3.14 where it says, we know we share in Christ if we continue until the end with the faith we had at first. Or Romans chapter five, verse three. Not only that, it says, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance or steadfastness. I know that there are a lot of you listening today who are, who are in the midst of suffering and, in, and you're in the midst of trial and hardship f- for a variety of different reasons. And you may be in that place in your life where you're going, what good can come out of this? Where is God in all this? What James is saying is you will face trials and those trials can be considered a, a source of joy if you recognize that they are transformative to you that they have redemptive potential, that they will transform you, then what is produced in you is a different kind of a heart. It's about a process of becoming like Jesus. There's joy because this is, according to the scripture, the only path to, to get to that maturity. The only way we become like Christ is by walking the road that he walked, which endured through trial. So there is joy for us, not a happy, tingly feeling, but joy in saying, I recognize that God can redeem the trial, that God can use the trial to create endurance in me, which then will produce maturity, that will produce maturity. It's interesting here, he says, uh, he says, you know, right? In three, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. Uh, he says, you know, l- like we know. But I will tell you that as I was prepping this message, there, there, were, there were definitely times as I was preparing this that I would say, as I look at my life over the last three or four months, I, I couldn't say with confidence I know that. There are a lot of times when trials have hit my doorstep, you know, where trials have shown up in its variegated and multicolored hue, and, and I haven't necessarily understood why I'm having to deal with what I'm dealing with. I, I want you to know that if you're at home today, and you're looking at the trials you're facing, and you can't say, yeah, I know this will produce maturity in me, James is wanting to remind you. He wants you to know, we should know, I should know, that God can use the trial to transform me, that what I believe, if I believe it, if I have that hope in who Christ is, I can endure. It's interesting, even around our, uh, even around our dining room table, there's kind of this funny uh, discrepancy between what people say and what they actually do. And sometimes it's because they don't understand the process, right? My, my wife will make salmon, for instance, and my son Hank will go, I don't like salmon. I'm not eating any of that salmon. I will, I'm not going to touch it. I think salmon's gross. Please don't make it ever again. And while that's really rude, at least what's going on inside of him is the truth of what's being made manifest in his life, right? My son Will, on the other hand, will kind of push the salmon around on his plate. And then he'll look at my wife across the table and he'll go, mommy, I really love the salmon that you've made but I don't ever want to have it again 
right? And I don't ever want to have it again. And it's one thing to say you love it, but it's another thing entirely to go, yeah, this is delicious. It's the best I've ever had, and I'd like to never taste it again in my life. I think a lot of us look at trials and we go, oh, no, 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 okay, okay, God, you know, like, I, I get it. I can count it joy because you're going to create steadfastness in me and endurance that ultimately will make me look more like you. But I never want to face trial again. We'd like to live a life, most of us, that are removed from trial and difficulty, but what James is saying is that that's the only path to becoming more like Christ. We should not look trial in the eye and wish it away. Instead, we greet it. We greet it as a source of maturity. Now, that might be hard. You might be going, well, I I don't know how to do that, and I don't know how to navigate the course of my life. Well, James speaks to that as well. Look at what he says next. After saying, steadfastness having its full effect, it makes us perfectly complete, lacking in nothing. He says in five, if any of you lacks wisdom, he's just said, once you're mature in Christ, you'll lack nothing, but you're not there yet. You're in process. So right now, there's a good chance you're lacking. And specifically, he says, if you lack wisdom, verse five, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He says, look, if, if, you, if you're hearing me say count it joy when you fall into trials and you're saying, I, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to consider the circumstance I'm in good just because it's gonna make me look more like Jesus. It's still really hard. He says the answer, if you lack wisdom about how to do that or how to navigate life in general is to ask God for wisdom and faith. This is a really important component. It's a really important component because the the key here is to ask God. Now, maybe we should even just talk about wisdom for a second. Wisdom is different than knowledge, right? It's not saying ask God for more information. It's not asking God for more details. It's not asking God to explain to us why it is we're in the trial that we're in. No, 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 it's asking for wisdom. Wisdom is different than knowledge in that wisdom is the ability to live effectively in response to what you already know, right? Colleges and universities, uh, elementary schools, uh, trade schools, they will teach you all kinds of information in in your desired field. You can learn all kinds of data in school. But what colleges and universities typically don't do is teach you how to take that information and apply it, how to live an effective life. Uh, Some of you have asked me about the the tattoo that's on my forearm here. This is based on a Benedictine motto. The Benedictines said in Latin, cruce libro et atro, which means the cross, the book, and the plow. I've got it tattooed. I know some of you don't like tattoos. Look, avert your eyes, whatever. The idea here, the Benedictines would say, is that in order to glorify God in my life, it's not enough to just have faith. It's not enough to just be a religious person to believe the right things. I also have to understand the world I live in. I have to be educated. I have to know what's going on around me. I have to be paying attention to, to, to the place that God has planted me, right? So there's faith, and there's knowledge, and there's hard work. The plow at the end, the cross, the book, and the plow, there's hard work. The ability to to take my faith and combine it with an understanding of my world and then to live an active life. That's wisdom. Not just knowing the right things, not just being educated well, but putting it into practice. That is wisdom. And so James says, if you're in a spot where you look at it and go, I don't know how to count all things joy, or I don't know how to maneuver my way through the trials I'm facing, he says the answer is ask God. I will tell you, we live in a world that is ripe with people who want to give you their wisdom. There are more sources than you can sort through 
with people giving you their opinions and people giving you their, their advice and people telling you their read on events and their read on what's happening in our world. And, and I am constantly in conversation with people who in the midst of trial and in the midst of pain and in the midst of suffering, when they don't know what to do and they don't know where to turn, are listening to the wisdom of the world are listening to the wisdom of CNN or listening to the world of Fox News or listening to the the wisdom of Instagram, if there is such a thing, or listening to the wisdom of Facebook or listening to the wisdom of television preachers or whatever. None of those places can give you wisdom. And if you're turning to them, the likelihood is that over time, you start to turn to the human sources of wisdom that speak back to you the things you already think. So you align yourself with people who already think and look like you and they're just repeating back to you and confirming that you're right and everybody else is wrong. James doesn't say in the midst of trials, when you don't know what to do and you don't know where to go, when you're having difficulty counting it all joy because you will ultimately look like Christ, he doesn't say look to one another and have a round table discussion about where to go. He says turn to God and ask for wisdom. Turn to God. Every other voice will fail you. You cannot trust in my opinions as a pastor. You and I alike as followers of Jesus have to turn to God and ask for wisdom and faith. Otherwise, look at what the result is. We listen to any other source. He says if you don't come to God in faith, if you don't come to God as the sole source of wisdom, look at what happens. It says the one who doubts, verse six, is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. We could read driven and tossed by MSNBC or driven and tossed by TikTok or driven and tossed by the opinions of your coworkers. If you're not turning to God for wisdom, you will be driven and tossed like a wave in the sea. For that person, verse seven, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He goes on to give us an example of that in the next verses. He says in verse nine, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers, withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Listen, we live in a world that says the poor man is cursed and the rich man is blessed. And that's the way the world has always been organized. But I believe that as James is writing his letter, right, he's literally thinking about the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. He's got the sermon, I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is not printed at this point, but I believe he's got the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount in, in his mind. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those that the world says are cursed. Jesus says, no, 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 not in the kingdom of God. We're gonna study it together in a couple of months. James here says, let the poor man exalt. Let, let him be celebrating his position. And let the rich man, look at what he says. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. He says, none of these things matter. Rich or poor, none of it matters. What matters is what you do with it. What matters is do you have the wisdom of God to help navigate it? That's why we will see in Jeremiah, right? In Jeremiah chapter nine, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. 
You feel stable in these times because you're rich? You feel unstable because you're poor? You feel worried because of the level of education you have or because of your level of employment or because of the color of your skin or, be, or because of the language you speak or the country you come from? You, you feel like those are the things that matter most. What James is saying here is that all of those things hold potential to be transformative in your life if they're shaped and guided by the wisdom of God. If you're looking at your situation, poor man, rich man, and you're listening to the world's wisdom, if you're being tossed about like a wind, like a wave in the wind, then your situation is everything. But if you're listening to the wisdom of God because you have asked him for wisdom in faith, if he is the sole source of your instruction, then what happens is you recognize that no matter what your circumstance, rich or poor, doesn't matter. What matters is that both of those have redemptive potential. The poor man can find the opportunity to become more like Christ in the midst of his poverty. And the rich man can find the opportunity to be more like Christ in the recognition that all the things he has ultimately will be burned away like grass in the sun. He says, you're having trouble finding joy in the midst of trials? You're having trouble navigating this life? Ask God. Ask God who gives wisdom. I will tell you, church and friends and family, you have a question about where your allegiance lies? You, you, wanna, you wanna just run a quick test? We talked about the fact that James has some great assessment tools in it. You wanna run a quick test about where your allegiance lies in the midst of the trials you're currently facing? What does your prayer look like? Have you prayed? I, and this, this is helpful because you don't have to answer this audibly. There's nobody here to answer audibly. But in the midst of the trials you're currently facing, have you prayed and asked God for wisdom? It's easy to say yes, and that might be your quick answer, right? It might be your quick answer to go, yeah, of course I prayed to God. Let, let's just be honest with each other. Have you prayed and asked God for wisdom in the midst of your trial, or have you been quicker to turn to Google? Have you been quicker to turn to the television? Have you been quicker to turn to, to podcasts and uh, Christian authors and, and preachers on TV? If you have found your wisdom in the insights of fallen man, it's no wonder you feel unstable, Run a quick assessment. When's the last time you turned to God in faith and asked him to help you navigate? To see the joy that can come in steadfastness and maturity. He says here, don't be double-minded. Turn to God in faith. In addition to that, let's look at the way he closes this section. James chapter one, back to it again. Look at verse 12. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. He's come back to the idea of steadfastness. And here, he's not, he's not just talking about the fact that there is the reward of conformity to the image of Christ. That is a reward, right? When we remain steadfast, we become complete and perfect, lacking in nothing, uh, conformed to the image of Christ. But he says, in addition to that benefit, there's an additional benefit, the blessing of God the fulfillment of God. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Crowns uh, throughout the, the scripture are signs and sources of dignity and joy and victory and completion and reward. He says, the person who remains steadfast in trial will receive a crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. He's already talked about the hope that we have to have in our lives about becoming mature, that hope that, that, that produces steadfastness and then maturity. He's talked about the fact that we have to ask for wisdom in faith, hope and faith. Now, he says, there is a crown, there is a blessing for those who love God. 
for those who love God in the midst of their trials. What's he saying? Well, not only do our trials produce the opportunity to be refined and transformed over time, but every trial we find ourselves in has the opportunity to bring glory to God as we adore him in the midst of it. Every trial we face, if we love him, will also bring him honor. But the problem for many of us is that in the midst of trials, our minds turn to our own selfish desires instead of our adoration of Christ. Our mind turns to the fact that we want to be comfortable, we want to be satisfied, or we want to have more money in the bank, or we want people to leave us alone, or whatever. And as a result, we're not focused on our adoration of Christ, and the trial becomes a temptation that leads us into sin and used to lead us to death before we were rescued by Christ. Listen to the way he says it. He says, blessed is the man, verse 12, who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. God's never enticed by evil, right? Because of his character, there's never a time where God thinks, maybe I'll lie, or maybe I'll steal, or maybe I'll be greedy. That's not who God is. God is never tempted by evil, uh, and God cannot be tempted with evil, right? Let no one say he is tempted. Uh, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, birth, uh, conceived gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What he's saying here is that it's, th- th- there's a question here of what you adore, what you're hungry for, what kind of appetite you have. If you have an appetite for the adoration of Christ and you love him, then these trials will produce his blessing as you honor him, the crown of life, victory, and success, and reward. But if in the midst of trial you love all the wrong things, if you love yourself, or you love your own safety, or you love your own satisfaction, or you love your own gain, or you love your own pride, if you have the wrong desires, those desires then produce sin. A failure to do the thing you were produced to do. Look, look, here's what it's saying. It's saying God doesn't tempt you. God hasn't tempted you to evil in the midst of your trial. It's easy sometimes in the midst of trials to go, well, why did God do this? He's got all this power, He could get rid of the COVID-19 thing. He could snap his fingers and it would be gone. He's trying to make me angry. He's trying to make me sad. He's trying to make me frustrated. Why doesn't God stop doing that? It's saying here, God, God doesn't do that. What God does is he provides a good opportunity, an opportunity for steadfastness and growth that because of our wicked desires, we turn to evil. We take a good opportunity and we turn it to evil. It's the same thing Adam and Eve did in the garden. He said, you can eat from any tree, just don't eat from that one. He gave them a good opportunity to obey him and their hearts turned because of their desire to be like God and knowing the difference between good and evil. It's the same thing with Cain. It's the same thing with Jacob. It's the same thing all the way through. My my wife, in the middle of all this, um, in the middle of all this COVID stuff, I said to my wife a few weeks ago, I said, we can't go out on dates. We can't go out to dinner. We're not going to concerts anymore. I feel, like, I feel like I've lost the opportunity to show you how I love you. Like I wish there was something romantic I could do locked here in our house that would show you how, how much you mean to me and how much I love you. But we used to be able to go out on these dates or I could take you places or whatever. Now we can't do any of that. No vacations. Like how do I, how do I show my affection? And she goes, well, the way you can show your affection is you can squeegee the shower doors. Right? Now that might not mean anything to you, but in our shower we've got these glass doors and my wife has this like squeegee thing. It's just like a little, it's like a windshield wiper and she wants the shower doors scraped off so they don't have water spots on them. I think 
She's watching this, so I gotta be careful. I think that's stupid, right? We're just gonna get in that shower again tomorrow and it's gonna get dirty again. Why squeegee it every day? No way. And she says, you know what would, what would show me affection? You wanna show me that you love me? Squeegee those shower doors after your shower's done. Now what she's done there, you guys, is she's, is she's put out an opportunity for me to show her my affection. She's told me in very simple terms, this is a way you can show me love. You wanna know how many days I've squeegeed the shower since, since she told me that? Zero, <laughs> right? That's, that's, I'm not proud of that. But I, I get out of the shower, I get dried off, I get dressed, and I think, uh, I should probably go back and squeegee that thing, and I think, that's dumb, and she's making me feel bad. She's making me feel like a bad person. She's making me feel like I don't love her. She's making me feel like I'm not affectionate. She's making me feel unromantic because I don't want to do this dumb chore, and I'm blaming her. But she didn't tempt me to showing her how little I care. What she did was she gave me an opportunity to show her how much I care. And I, in my own selfishness, set that aside and blamed her for making me look bad. See the difference? By the way, from here on out, I'm squeegeeing the doors every day. You can't use an illustration like this and then not start doing it. But the idea there is my wife didn't tempt me to, to disaffection. She gave me an opportunity to show affection. Every trial, this is what James is saying, every trial is a tipping point. It's a fulcrum on which you can either honor God because of your great love for him or you can fall into sin because of your love for yourself or other things. He says, so remember, face trials with joy. Count them joy. Consider them joy because they will produce in you steadfastness which ultimately will conform you to the image of Christ. Complete, whole, lacking in nothing. If you don't get that, if you have a hard time wrapping your mind around it, then in faith ask God for his wisdom but be sure not to listen to the wisdom of the world or you'll be smashed around like waves in a wind-tossed sea. The wise and the rich both have redemptive potential. It's not about being one or the other. It's about listening to the wisdom of God in the midst of that. And not only can you mature in the midst of trials, he says, but you can honor God if your affection for him reigns supreme. He says he gives the crown of life to those who love God. He closes this particular section as he's in transitioning. He says in 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. There it is again, brethren. He says, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. He's like, remember who God is. You having trouble loving him? You having trouble adoring him rather than yourself? Remember, everything you know, the sunshine, the rainfall, the, the, the swimming pool, everything you have is from God. The very stars in the sky, he is the Father of. Every good and perfect gift comes from that Father. And with him, he says, there is no shadow of change with whom there is no variation or shadow. That same good God who gave you life and breath, who created this earth and placed you in it. He says, God is good. He's a giver of good gifts. And of his own will, verse 18, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He says, by his will, he gave you life, not only initially by putting people on the planet, but he gave us life again in Christ, right? When Jesus came and died for us, when he shed his blood on our behalf, rose from the dead, and by his grace extended resurrection life, he gives us life a second time. That same good God, that God of resurrection power, who is the father of all light, is a giver of good gifts, and that can sometimes be hard to remember in the midst of trials. But he says, remember, everything he gives to you is for your good. It's good. It's for his glory and your maturity. So he says, consider it joy when you face these trials. 
Listen to the wisdom of God. What's he ultimately calling us to? He's ultimately calling us to the same things we're called to again and again throughout the scripture. He's calling us to the hope, to the faith, and to the love of God. Faith, hope, and love. It comes up all the time. But there is a call for us to check ourselves internally because he's the giver of all good gifts. He's given us life, and he did so that we would be a kind of first fruits, it says in 18. What's that mean? It means that we would put him on display, that we would put his goodness on display, that we would put his redemptive power on display, that we would reveal Christ in the midst of our trials. I know this has been a hard season. I know that it will likely be, continue to be a hard season. And some of you aren't just facing the trial of COVID or the trial of racial injustice. Some of you are facing multiple exponential trials on top of trials. He says, when those come, recognize that God can redeem them. That he's not tempting you to evil, but he's giving you a good opportunity to honor him if your love is in the right place. If you love him more than you love all of this, if you listen to him more than you listen to all of these other voices, Your hope and faith and love can provide for you an opportunity to navigate the trials of life in such a way that he transforms you into his image and he is glorified and blesses you with the crown of life. The crown of life for those who love him. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us hope and faith and love that you would help us to look at our own circumstances, to look at our own prayer life, to look at our response to the trials that have been placed in front of us, and to recognize that you've given us these great opportunities, even in the midst of difficulty, to be transformed and to honor you. And yet so often because our love is misplaced, because our faith is in our world and in the wisdom of our fellow man, because our hope has been crushed God, we fail to endure. We fail to glorify you. We fail to turn to you in faith and request your wisdom. God, help us to navigate the trials of life and to consider them joy because of who you are, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.